And on today's episode of the Sports Nutritionist Podcast, I have a very special guest, good friend and colleague of mine, Geordie Sullivan, the fight dietitian. Now, some of you may already know of Geordie. He is the dietitian to UFC world champions, Alex Volkanovsky and Israel Adesanya, as well as the dietitian for a number of contending Australian, current, former, and contending, as I just said, uh, Australian and world boxing champions from Australia as well. So we are talking about people contending for IBF, WBC, WBO belts. So he is the foremost expert in the Southern Hemisphere as it relates to combat sports and weight-making nutritional strategies. In this episode, we talk uh, about a number of things. Some of the things that come up in this lengthy episode, this is probably the longest one to date, are some cool stories that he has with his elite athletes and then how we look at the perceptions as the nutrition professional public, how we perceive elite world champion athletes and their approaches to nutrition and what our prejudices are and how we should potentially reframe those as well as we look at some really funny anecdotes that he's seen in the fight game. And then also the utility of the applied sciences and how relevant they are, the applied biochemistry, exercise physiology, nutrition physiology, and how relevant it is to understand at a detailed level, competently, mechanistically, what's going on in the body at any given time to be able to critically appraise an adaptation or situation. And then finally, we talk about a little bit of a cool project that we've got coming in um, and on the program within the association, probably in early 2022, all things going well. So I hope you enjoy the episode. So mate, give us an overview of your time up until this point in becoming the fight dietitian. Yeah, I'll give you the um, the elevator pitch because it's a it's a long, boring story. But essentially, so I studied, I did a Bachelor of Exercise Nutrition Science over at Uni of Queensland. I was uh, silly enough to give them thousands and thousands of more of my uh, hard-earned money and do a master's degree. And that was a master's in dietetics. And after I finished that, I actually uh, I yeeted it and I gapped it and I went over to Canada. And um, by that point, to be honest, I was a bit not sick of nutrition, but I was a bit like, I need a break from this. So I just went traveling around and worked in ski fields and did all that. But I actually ended up working in gyms and whatnot. And because I was so dead broke, ended up working, like running boxing classes and because I was just so skint. So I just needed cash. So I was just running boxing classes. And naturally, I guess that just started these conversations, guys like, hey, I want to lose weight. I want to get you know fitter. And they're like, oh, you have a nutrition degree and blah, blah, blah. And that kind of just snowballed. And then when I went from like those little ski villages, went back to bigger cities like Toronto and Vancouver doing the same thing and just kind of started helping a lot more people. And it really like opened my eyes that, Hey, look, this is a real field like combat sports. There's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of books. I was trying to Google things and I was like, man, I can't find any good info. Mm. And I've got all these people asking me stuff. So I guess from there, I just looked for what teams I like Googled UFC dietitians, like MMA nutritionist and not a lot came up and I was lucky enough to come across a few people and shadow them when I was in um, North America and see how they did it. And even then I was like, man, this is, um, this is pretty below average from what I think this should be done. Like, I feel like there's not a lot of science in this field. And this was, this was like what, back in 2016, 2017 or something. Mm. So it's like well before the UFC had a performance Institute, well before like combat sports nutrition is what it is now. Yeah. It was just like the big teams, right? So like TriStar top team. Yeah. American it top all, team. It was, all these, and it was just kind of yeah. like everyone doing their own thing. So once I kind of saw all that, I came back with the intention. I was like, you know what? Like I, I've seen in North America, how there's this huge demand for 
combat sports nutrition. And when you put yourself in those environments, people will ask you for it, but we just don't really have a system. So that kind of kickstarted this whole thing with my first business, the fight dietitian. When I came back, I was like, you know what? I just want to create a system of nutrition for these guys that one gives them actual performance nutrition guidelines because everyone was just doing the most random shit you could think of. And two, put some more safer guidelines in around making weight because anyone that's involved with combat sports knows weight cutting is a huge issue and it, you know, it can be potentially fatal. People can die. So let's put some systems in and let's get this as widespread as possible and get this out to as many people and try to take it as global as we can. So that's pretty much how it all started. Then like any business, just snowboard, right? Get one Mm. client here, one client there, snowboard and kind of built what TFD is today. And then other businesses as well. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, um, from memory, did I think I think I got this right? You did a bit of hospital practice, like hospital dietetics as well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Six to twelve months, something like yeah, that. Six months or so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was all right, man. Like I think like I think a lot of clinical skills, like things that I learned on when I was finishing my master's, I did a year or something straight on the oncology ward, mm. and that was like a very rewarding experience. And there was a lot of cool things that I guess I learned then. This is how messed up combat sports can be. Like people who are in that end stage of their life of terminal disease is kind of similar to at the very back end when this process gets taken to the extreme. It's like yeah. quite similar. And there's like a few equations for how we calculate energy requirements that I've taken from my time working on oncology and I can use it with them. It seems to fit pretty well, <laughs> and which is, which is kind of crazy, but it's a cool experience. Like I did, yeah, the hospital work. And then I worked in sports supplements when I was over in Canada as well. I worked at university uh, doing food service and then in the sports nutrition teams with hockey players, basketball players, things like that. And then when I came back here, I was also doing sports nutrition, like working in sports clinics, working with all different types of people, did gut health, all the kind of stuff. It was like most like what most typical grads do. It's like you don't really have a clear Mm. direction and you're kind of trying to figure out and you're trying to take in as many people as you can. Whereas like I kind of found like, you know what, just flip that model and like really narrow in on a niche and get really good at that. And that's probably going to open up more opportunities. And I think you're probably going to enjoy your job a bit more. So a bit of everything, but I'm glad it kind of led me to this path. Yeah, for sure. Did you find when you were doing your exercise and nutrition science undergrad that like, it was, it was like, it, it was, it was quite hard to link like the mechanistic sciences that you were being taught to like the, the application with an athlete in the room. Oh, for sure. This is, um, this is a convo I always have when we take on interns or new grads yeah. and they go, okay, like this convo, they always have this convo. Oh man, I learned this chemistry and I learned this biology in first year, but it's just useless. Eh? It's just like, you don't need to know that's just first year science. And it's like, no man, like you absolutely need to know that. Yeah. The difference is, is that when you've been practicing or you have that application, you have that experience, you can see how that works in real life. Mm. And especially like when you do what we do with like the weight making, when you're quite literally pushing the physiological boundaries of someone, understanding biochemistry, understanding chemistry, physiology, anatomy is really important. But at that time, if you're afraid, I was like 17 or something, 17, yeah. 18, straight out of school. I didn't, and I didn't have any practical experience. I was learning this stuff going, oh, cool. But I had no idea, okay, this is going to be useful when I do this. So that's what I always say to guys is like, if you can get some type of practical experience, whether it's like an internship, whether you just go out and take clients as a student dietitian or student nutritionist, whatever, do it because it's going to be so valuable for you when you're learning that. Cause it'll be that like light bulb moment when you go, Oh, 
This I is how that. it relates. This is how yeah. it works. That's why I need to know that. This is how this all connects together. So, so, so valuable. Because those gaps were big, man. Like I remember see for you, it was like 17. I was 18 and a half, 19. And I was just like, this is so useless. Like, and I wrote, learn it. Like it was just rehearsal learning to pass this shit. And then like later on, probably wasn't until I'm like 27, 28 in a clinical setting with athletes that I'm like, holy shit, this is what that actually means. And this is why, and fuck, it's relevant, right? Like this is why it's so relevant. Whereas people sort of just going through it, they're just like, oh shit, you know, it's sort of important here. But like you said, like you can get that experience. And that's why we say like from our end with the cert, we're like, this is just enough to get your foot in the door, to get you the insurance. We want you to study more. We want you to do more, but that way you can have that experience that like we really didn't get at the time while we're racking up these tens of thousands of dollars in debt for this education where it's sort of like what, not knowing why it's relevant. Yeah. And you learn so much, man. Like I think a lot of people bag university, but I like university is a fantastic place. If you go in there with the right mindset, mm. like I think if I knew what I knew now and redid university as a mature age student, I would be a hundred times further in my career because mm. I would be able to tap into all the resources that were at university. I'd really be able to narrow in on these specific learnings, talk to top level researchers and be like, okay, what's the latest in this? And how can I use this in my practice? But at the time, yeah, you have no idea about yeah. any of that. You don't know. So it's like, you, which is kind of cruel. I think you just go in there with like absolutely knowing nothing, spending all this money. You don't even see you're spending because it's all on hex and everything. Yeah, and then it's only coming out now. That you're yeah, it's money. only when you're like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> what are you doing tax man? And then, and then it's like, yeah, I always think that's like, man, if I could go back, I would just tap into so many of those resources again. And that's a big philosophy now with like TFD, right? Is like, I think we've done so well as a brand and as a company because we have access to say some of the top level researchers where we're doing this with some of the best athletes in the world at all levels of competition. But then we've also got this academic side where these researchers are just funneling all this new research to us and we can put it into practice. We don't mm. have to wait the five, six, seven years or whatever it is like for it to get into yeah, uni, paper uni to practice or whatever. Position. So yeah. we can just do it and play around with it and play in it. It's so effective. But again, it's coming from that realization of, oh crap, I, this is how this all fits in. This is yeah. why I need to know this physiology. This is why I have to know this biochemistry. And when I'm adjusting this with this athlete, this is why this is happening. So having that connection. So, so, so important. Yeah. And it's also like, I mean, you, you talk about it, right? Like the connection but like of them and people sort of often don't realize like we're taught these subjects categorically, like everything's categorized. Hey, this is physiology, this is biochem and stuff, but it's all synergistically interrelated. Mm. And so, yeah, you're learning it as a single subject, but it's, you know, I guess developing a competent understanding that and comprehension that they're intrinsically linked and how they actually interact with one another that people sort of miss. And it's not until you're getting that like, practical experience with a person in that setting to fully comprehend, I guess, just how relevant it is. And so we get people who come through and they'll study with us and they'll, they might be like, why am I learning this? And then this, or it says that this is related and stuff. And it's like, these are just subjects for like calling it a title, but like it's the human body. Like everything is just linked. It's a complex system, right? Yeah, for sure, man. And it's just like, it's like that old thing. You don't know what you don't know, right? And it's that Dunning-Kruger is such a big thing. I think when you start learning all this and you learn a little bit and you're like, oh, man, I know everything. I can do it all. But then when you start getting into the depths of it, you're like, I know nothing. And mm -hmm. I, I know top-level researchers who are experts in their field and they still go, yeah, like kind of, I think this is how it works, but it could be doo -doo 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 -doo, all these things. And you're like, whoa, mm -hmm. what the heck? And I think that's just, I think one of the most valuable thing of doing any type of further education is not necessarily the content that you're learning 
because in reality, it's 2021. You could probably go learn that anywhere, but developing those mental processes of learning how to learn, learning how to critically think, mm. learning how to critically evaluate information, and then how does that apply to this individual sitting in front of me? Those skills are so, so, so useful, like we keep saying, when it comes to taking this information and then merging it with the athlete so you can get an actual meaningful result with them. Mm, mm. So speaking of, we're going to segue a bit. We're talking about athletes. This is something that we have a bit of a sort of like a burning passion for. But um, people, like you work with some of the top athletes in the world in their respective sports, right? And I I, I think we both sort of observed it. Like there, there's this, within the industry, there's this sort of like, held belief or ideology that in order to be the best in the world, your nutrition in this sense, you know, this is the industry that we're in has to be perfect and elite. <laughs> and that these top athletes have like, like you, you, you're not going to be a world champion if you're not tracking things to the gram and tracking your off season and all this kind of stuff. But obviously your experience has um, led you to a, a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, we could go right. No, <laughs> let's get into it. Let's get think, into um, it. <laughs> yeah. I, I essentially, like I'll say this off the bat is I think when you're learning something about nutrition, it's very important to have like very strict numbers because again, you're just putting those mental processes in place. You're trying to make these connections. Hey, Alex, you're this weight. You should be eating this many grams of protein, this many grams of carbs, et cetera, et cetera. That's good. That's good to have those foundations in place. I think what I've learned in the years that I've worked with very, very high level athletes is that nutrition is important, but performance is a very complex thing. And I think when you spend and commit so much time of your life to one little thing, you may be prone to overstating the importance of that one thing to justify all that time you've just spent on it. Mm. So if I've studied for five, six years and just spent, I don't know, 60, 80K, whatever it is, hey, Kobe, you've got to get your nutrition down pat, blah, blah, blah. You've got to get it right. Trust me, man. Validate me for these last six years so I don't feel like I waste my time. And don't get me wrong. It is important. Nutrition does have a role to play. But when I think of like the performance pie, it's just a small slice, right? Like, and that's something that I've learned with these top, top level guys is that there's so many other guys like mindset. I think we don't get taught that enough. I think we get taught about like rote science and going, okay, a plus B equals C, but they never really talk about say like sports psychology and the importance of this athlete turning up to give their best performance. Like you can have the best diet, you can have the best training plan, you can have an awesome fight camp, you can have a great warm up. If you get on court or get under those lights and you mentally just lose it, so what? And then you're left thinking, okay, was it the nutrition? What was it? Like, did we stuff up? Because that's the other thing. And this is something I learned very quickly is that when people are winning, They'll often say, okay, this guy had like a keto diet before he had this big win. So that keto diet must have worked. Mm. Well, this guy had a vegan diet and then he won. So that vegan diet or vice versa, he did vegan and then he lost. And it's not so much the case because there's so many aspects of what makes up that performance. And in short, what I found, nutrition is important, but it's not probably not as important as what people will think like. They don't need to be tracking every single gram. They no, don't need to be thinking about this 100% of the time. If they slip up a little bit here and there, it's fine. And that's me saying that where I'm probably in one of the only areas of sports nutrition where if we stuff up, I've got hundreds of cameras on me. I've got 
a whole world of media mm. plus i've got 30 percent of that guy's purse which mm. some of these guys are making seven figures yeah. making a lot of money so yeah they, they lose, lose a big portion if they yeah. lose 30 percent. they're going hey jordy hey cough it up pal that's yeah. so it's like we have to get these numbers right but it's not as that strict and detailed as what you would think because mm. there's so many other things that go into it like yes yeah if you want to lose weight you've got to be in a calorie deficit don't get me wrong all of that does hold true but I don't think the risk first reward of you being on top of these guys, man, did you get that extra 10 grams of protein? Did you get that extra 10 grams of carbs? Did you do this and do that? That's probably more detrimental than it is positive. Cause at the end of the day, if they're getting these baseline principles, they're getting these founding principles, right? They're feeling good. We're addressing all those other aspects of their performance, their sleep, their stress management, their water intake, things like that that's probably going to add up those little one percenters a lot more from the nutrition side that is going to contribute to all of those other things that make up a good performance. Mm. Them developing as an athlete, developing their game plan, increasing their skills, having that like adaptation to training. That's all going to help support all of that. At the end of the day, performance is a very complex thing. Nutrition is very good for supporting a lot of those things, but it's by no means the be all and end all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people get sort of caught in the weeds, especially in our industry, right? Where it's like, it matters so much. And I think, you know, like I remember we'd be chatting, uh, what do you reckon? Like 18 months ago. And you'd be like, I, I can have a fight and nail a weight cut. And then they get clipped on the chin and they'll have like trained perfectly. Now they're cut performance markers, biomarkers, everything's amazing. They get clipped on the chin and like someone who's had a shit weight, like shit camp, shit cut, shit nutrition, just has skill or just does it on the day. And then all of a sudden, all that hard work's down the drain. Hmm, exactly. Like, again, especially when we look at sports like, like MMA, which I'm super involved in, it's what we call like a multifaceted sport. Whereas like even running, I'm not going to say like I do a lot of running nowadays, but we call it more of a single facet sport where it's, there's a lot to it, just putting one foot in front of the other. But again, it's just one foot in front of the other. Now your technique, get good VO2 max, like get you feeling right. Probably a lot less factors. Whereas you look at a multifaceted sport like MMA, there's so many different components. Like you've got to have a good aerobic system. You've got to have a good anaerobic system. You've got to have good jujitsu. You've got to have good wrestling. You've got to have good Greco wrestling, good counter wrestling. You've got to have mm. good kickboxing. You've got to have good kickboxing off of the cage when you break out of like clinches. So many things that come into play. And so how do you define, like, define what is a good performance? Because like you said, you can have someone who's ticked all the boxes. We've nailed our weight descent. They hit all of their macros, hit all of their numbers. We did a perfectly fine weight cut. Everything was good. It was within what we know to the evidence is best practice. And then they go out there to a, say a Russian, a Dagestani wrestler who has an old school coach from the year 800 AD or whatever. <laughs> and then they're just doing these brutal weight cuts and just feeding them like just milk and carrots all fight camp and nothing else. And they're just doing these rough, rough things and they just go out and maul them. Mm. And it's like, well, how does that happen when, you know, by the book, we did everything right, but it's because again, performance in that multifaceted sport is so complex and we don't really know what it is or what's more important than the others that ultimately lead to a better chance of having that performance. Mm. And that's what, what we call like the performance nutrition puzzle or the performance puzzle is trying to figure out, okay, what components for this athlete fighting this guy is going to be more important that we need to work on. That's going to give us a better chance of getting the result that we want. Mm, mm. yeah that's a head fuck very that's very a head fuck. Yeah. so i mean if you were to like to give to give anyone listening if you were to say hey like like my recommendations at this point when i've heard it if i'm going to paraphrase or say based on what you're saying it'd be like look 
don't worry about the five to 10 grams of carbs and protein, you know, five, five to 10 of fat. If they spend an hour stressing about that, they're better off putting it into mindset and perfecting their performance and craft, right? Like you'd rather them spend, get your head right or get better at the craft. Don't worry about those five to 10 grams. Yeah. I think just get the basics right. Like nail the fundamentals, the fundamentals in anything. I think nutrition in, in sport, like I go into the gym with UFC world champions and they're doing fundamental basic drilling that you wouldn't think is, oh, wait, this guy's been doing this for 15 years and he's undefeated for 22 fights in the UFC, but he's still doing the basics because the basics work. And it's the same with nutrition. Get your carbohydrates in around training, get a good amount of protein, get a good enough amount of protein to help preserve as much as possible that lean mass, get the fat to keep supporting your hormones and your metabolism, but don't cut it too much because we need that. And it's important. Get lots of fiber in. We need to drink heaps of water. You need to get that sleep, do some stress management. All of those things are pretty basic and they're pretty fundamental. And I think people will be thinking, oh, there's got to be some secret little macro split or you're doing something or there's some supplement here. It's like, no, it's not. The best guys I have on our roster nail the fundamentals. And mm. that's what I find is the biggest difference between amateurs or guys coming up is they're always looking for that silver spoon or that shortcut. And they're always looking for that supplement that they can take that will fuel them through training instead of getting eight hours sleep and eating a good amount of complex and simple carbohydrates throughout their day and timing that properly around their training. They just want the shortcut. They want mm. the silver spoon. Whereas the top, top, top level guys, they nail those fundamentals and they do it consistently. And that's why they get these really, really good results. Consistency over time equals results. Mm, mm. And so, I mean, I think, I think as well, like people just underestimate like, no, like what, what's involved in nailing the basics anyway, right? Like people, people want the shortcut because it's like, oh, the quick thing or the supplement because it's easier. If I just take this, then I don't have to put all the effort into doing these things. And it's like, no, just fucking do that and turn up. Mm. Um, so what is like people, okay, so like what, what's... <laughs> What, what, what's the off season or like the non-fight camp approach for people like Volk, Israel, some of the top boxes that you've had, like, what, what are they like, you know, like, because I think sort of on the topic of like nutritional literacy or nutritional adherence, people think that like, oh, they must be to the gram in the off season as well. Right. And like, yeah, no, no, I think there's this saying that goes around is like the 52 week athlete. And I understand the principle, the concept of it is really good. Or well, they say like in our industry, the 52-week fight camp. And I always turn around and go, man, have you ever been in a fight camp? Have you ever helped someone through a fight camp? Like you do not want that person doing that 52 weeks of the year because it's a lot of stress on the body. And I think that's important because you need to give these time, guys some time off in their off season. Like, yes, they're top elite level world champion athletes. They're also humans. Like they also have friends and family that they need to go see. They also enjoy getting Uber Eats at night and watching, you know, having a pint of Ben and Jerry's with their girlfriend, like they're still humans. At the end of the day, you need to make allowances for that. And that's again, when those fundamentals come in and we talk about nutrition literacy, these guys have so many things they need to learn. And that's a big principle we say is get them to a point where they understand these fundamentals. Yes, we give them an off camp like plan and we let them, okay, this is what you should be eating, but it's nailing the fundamentals. Hey man, like, you know, if you've got a big training day, you need to be getting more calories in and more carbohydrates. And you should know by now what type of carbohydrates work well with your body and how to fuel these different training sessions and how much. And okay, you're sweating a lot in this session. You should know how much fluid to put back in. And you know, because we've done everything, you're a salty sweater, put the electrolytes back in. Hey, you're out of camp. You know, maybe we don't need to have as much 
protein. So you don't need to be stacking up steaks this high every single night. Mm. You know what I mean? And you don't need to be as strict as keeping your fat just here. But as long as they've got those principles that they know, like I'm very, very on, on the team of don't get them counting. Don't get them counting calories and counting macros so strictly. One, because I think it's a complete mind fuck. And I think it's just mm. an absolute recipe for eating disorders. Just absolute. No, I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then two, I think it's counterproductive. It makes them hate food. It makes yeah. them like have this terrible relationship and it's not it, risk versus reward. It's not worth it. Mm. If they know these basics well enough, we've got outlines. Hey, we need to keep your weight out, you know, from blowing out from out here. We can't have that. You need to stay within here. This is, this plan will get you there, but Hey, you've got flexibility within here. That type of structure works really well. And that's what all our top level guys do. Mm. And like people think they go, man, like they bulk must just be eating like to the T. It's like, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Like have he, they followed his Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Like, have you seen that guy? He's making like Cheeto chicken wings and stuff. And like, I get like a hundred messages after and they're like, oh, I can't believe Volk. It's like, yeah, he can eat it. Like, man, like give him a break. Yeah. And like Volk, every time we start camp, like I've had this discussion, I use him as a case study with like our interns. We pull up all his data and I go, look, Volk comes into camp every time, almost like a textbook. If I was to give a textbook of how to make weight in combat sports, mm. bulk hits those numbers almost perfectly. Like out of camp, he's a good percentage out. And we just do a little two week diet in gets to his eight week mark. And then every week he knows exactly how much to eat, exactly how to hit it. And every camp I've done with him, we've hit those numbers mm. and we've never had a, like a tough weight cut, never been a struggle. Yes. There's a lot of numbers and there's a lot of science behind all of that, but he doesn't need to know that. Like, I don't need that in his head. No. Like, is, he knows that, okay, he's, it's taken care of. If I'm going to eat these Cheeto chicken wings at a super high calorie, like, it's okay. I'll eat that today. And, like, I don't need to, like, go for an extra run. I don't yeah, need to burn this, you know? Yeah, like, but he's not doing that, like, three weeks out from yeah, making exactly, weight. Exactly, right? Right? Like, he's doing like, it. He's, he's just one. Yeah, yeah. And, and this <laughs> is the other recovery, thing. right? Like, we have something with all our guys where I, I don't call it a cheat meal, but it's, like, have a more relaxed meal, like, once to twice a week. And we can get into the weeds of like why I recommended this and like a bit of a refeed and a somewhat of a diet break is people don't also don't appreciate that, like how much energy these guys burn. Oh, like, yeah, and it's I, phenomenal. And I think like people just don't understand how, like, how, like how to actually train hard. I think one, like, like intense training is a skill of its own. And then these guys do it for like four hours a day for like probably a seven hour training day. Yeah, it, it's insane, right? And I think like average schmoes like you and me, right? If you think of like the amount <laughs> percentage-wise of your overall energy output, what's contributed to training. Mm. Like if you're going to gym, even if you're lifting weights heavy for- Oh man, like, weights yeah. is so energetically yeah. inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, you're not you're not Like you're running much. now, so like, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not contributing all that much to the overall pie of your energy output. No. But then when you go in and if you ever have to jump in sessions with these guys and do it and do it for a couple of days in a row, you appreciate, holy shit, the output on these guys is insane. So it's like every guy I get in when they go into fight camp, they're like, man, I can't be eating this much. And you're like, man, I want you to eat freaking double of this. Yeah. Because it's so hard for you to get. So they're going to be in a calorie deficit. A lot of my job isn't necessarily working out exactly, okay, like how do I get them just into this calorie? It's how do I preserve them not being too deep in this state of negative yeah. energy balance, low energy availability? How do I close that gap? So we're still losing the recommended amount of weight, but I'm not cooking and frying their system the in whole way so. through because yeah. that output, and unless you've been in that environment, unless you've been with these guys, 
it's kind of hard to appreciate. Mm. It's really, and I think when we all train and most people in sports usually will have some concept of like being athletic and doing sports in their previous lives or they're still competitive now. There is levels to it. Oh, <laughs> like there, oh man. There are levels to it. Like I think if Big you're a time. recreational athlete and even if you train pretty frequently, a, pretty frequently yeah. and you put in, you're probably not adapted the way that this guy is who's been doing it for 15 Shit, years no. and like your body could not handle that level. No matter what you ate. No matter what you ate, no matter what you did, you probably couldn't handle because your body hasn't adapted to it for so long. So that's a big one is like these guys are just burning so, so, so much energy (laughs) where it's like, okay, we need to close that gap. Like we're going to be in a calorie deficit Mm. regardless. We're going to be in a calorie deficit. How do we close that gap and mitigate those problems? Yeah, because I mean like having them recover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like it's so important, right? It's like, are you sleeping? Are you eating enough? What's your EA like? And these are all con- like concepts that like I, I think when I explain like sports nutrition and like evidence-informed or evidence-based sports nutrition and why it's important, um, you know, to people because they'll pose the question like, oh, it's just calorie deficit. And it's like, yeah, it is. And like, look, if, they, if they're exercising and they're in a deficit and they have some protein, the results physically with how they look and like on the scales are going to be pretty similar. Mm. But the role of like evidence-informed sports nutrition is to say, hey, these people who are like, uh, who, who are at the end stages of like performance or like the extremes of weight making, or it could be weight making. It could be like, a, you know, high performance and elite level performance in the Hawaiian Ironman. Like we know that as we get to the tip top or, or end of any spectrum, it's pretty fucking extreme. The role is to say, hey, we acknowledge the extremities and the risks and we can use the evidence that we now have to attenuate a lot or a big portion of the risks that we're aware of to mitigate the damage that's associated with it. And so, yeah, acutely we're getting the same outcome, but chronically, how much are we like fucking the person, right? And and like, like, like there's been case studies with fighters that you know of, like former champs, all that kind of stuff that had like significantly fucked low EA impacting their performance for like what like two two and a half years and stuff like just some crazy shit before they started like getting it fixed again you know and like and it doesn't turn up in like the immediate present that people were used to sort of like referencing right or it's like what you were saying like fighter becomes world champion damn it's that keto thing yeah it's interesting man especially and we can get deep on lea if you want as well like (laughs) energy availability is such an interesting topic as well and I think, again, from where I sit for what we do with, with our athletes, at the end of the day, you have to put them in a state of LEA a lot of the time to make the weight purely because of time. Like mm. we don't have the pleasure of, say, if a, if a bodybuilder or a physique athlete. Oh, yeah, 30-week prep yeah, or a 26-week like prep. Yeah, a whole year to get ready. Like we don't have that luxury where you can increase it and slow it out. If someone calls, like if the big boss calls and says, hey, you've got to fight and you know you're one or two fights away from making that title, like at the end of the day, it's like the entertainment business and it's a business. So it's like, you've got to show up, you've got to put on a show. You can't miss that opportunity. So we're sitting here and we're like, okay, shit, like we've got to get this weight off. Again, it's balancing those risks. We know we've got to put this guy in a pretty low state of energy availability, but we've got to make the weight. Like we've just got to do it. And I think this is like an probably segue and we're going a little, little round houses off the block here, but understanding mechanisms i think is so important i think in what i do it's probably one of those areas of sports nutrition where you really do have to understand mechanistically what's going on like what's happening with their physiology okay 
energy availability, what does that really mean? And what does the literature act actually say? And then what do we know from in practice? And do we, do we know that if we put them in this amount of EA for this amount of time, are they going to experience this or is it different for each people and are more people or, you know, is this male more resilient than this female? Why or why not? So mm. understanding these things is really important and you've got to put all this information together and work with the individual in front of you because say, let, let's say, like take the example of someone gets a call four weeks out and they go, Hey, Jordy, I've got a fire. I've got to get it. And we've got to get ludicrous amount of weight. And I go, okay, we can do it. I've just got to drive you in this pretty crazy LEA to get there. You have that professional battle in your mind. Okay. Is this going to be worthwhile for them when they, I know they're going to make weight. And if they don't, they lose all this money and you know, all the cameras are on them and they got this so unprofessional, blah, blah, blah. But am I doing damage to this person? And it's the thing that you need to toss up. And that's where understanding the mechanisms and the literature, because I'll say it like, and I'm sure I'll get grilled for it. I don't think we know nearly as much as what we need to about energy availability oh. to, to make any real oh. statements. And I've seen it live with the guys that we do. I think you can drive people and there's good. Acutely. Yeah. 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 Like James Morton's team at Liverpool, John Moore's has some great research, like one current paper with a male um, Taekwondo athlete showing that you can drive them in pretty low LEA in a short, you know, they say eight week period is short. And I say, go diet for eight weeks and tell me it's short. Oh, it's <laughs> long as shit. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty long. But like even that, you can recover from all that and be resilient. And, you know, Dr. Carl Langan Evans has a study coming out where he's done a two year assessment of a professional UFC female fighter, again, over five, six camps or something where they just drive her into this really low LEA, all those markers stay consistent. Now that's an N equals one study, but coming from someone who's done this with literally hundreds and hundreds of people, we are a lot more resilient to this, you know, than what we are led to believe. And the other argument, again, why you need to be able to look at the literature, look at the evidence and say, how does this apply to this individual? I'm working with pretty elite level athletes. So is it by fact that they have whatever in them genetically, you know, with their training that maybe we've just filtered out all these people that are resilient to this LEA over time. And they've just found themselves mm. in combat sports where they have to, you know, make weight and they can actually get what, where maybe you and me, is average Joe blows. Like we we're try just, to do it. We're we, just fragile. We're, we're just cooked. You know what I mean? <laughs> like our bad knees. Yeah. Like our metabolism. From lower <laughs> yeah. Like our metabolism just wouldn't cop it. Yeah. So like, but that's a consideration. That's the cool thing about sports nutrition, right? Is like, you can say and learn all these things, but at the end of the day, it's a pretty new field and there's so much gray Big area, time. right? And we don't know a lot of these things. And that's, I always come back and like going around the houses here, but like Understanding mechanisms is so important. Oh, and then understanding that athlete in front of you, critical how do you apply yeah. those mechanisms to that compared to say the evidence and then your experience with all these other athletes. That's why it's so important. Yeah. I, it, it, it's funny you say that. And like, I would think also like you sort of touched on them before and it's like, you know, you're like, oh, you know, you were saying I might get shit for saying I can put them pretty low EA and stuff. Or you might think, oh, it, it's not that bad. But I think the other aspect to it is is like if you're fueling them adequately outside of it then the relative damage for these small little acute periods are like in, in and this is just my opinion in terms of what i know at the moment what i've observed in literature and seen with athletes as well and it's like it's not that bad where it gets really fucked is if you go chronically low ea and then they're like they're following these crazy things and recommendations the whole time like they are that 52 week they're in that 52 week camp or whatever it is they're keeping their weight within that range but in order to keep their weight within their range they're fucking themselves in the process leaching bone mineral density all that kind of stuff like that's where i'm like oh 
that period's, you know, that that's where they're screwing up. And I think that's like people underestimate that they, they, I mean, we've spoken about this at, at nauseam before as well. And it's like, they'll come to you and think that it's like, oh, this is a weight loss camp. Like, like my camp and working with Geordie is going to be a weight loss camp. And it's like, no, like I'm here to fuel your performance. Yeah, we're going to make weight, but we're looking at fueling performance. And if you're fueling performance and you've addressed that shit away from it and you're act- actually able to get them to eat what they should be eating, which like, it's so funny. Like anytime I listen to someone complaining about dieting, I'm like, oh my God, you fuck have no clue. Like the worst thing is, the worst thing is trying like training at super high intensities at super high volumes and trying to eat enough around those training windows and not throw up, but to adequately fuel yourself. To me, that's just like, that's fucking purgatory. That's the worst. Whereas like experiencing a little bit of hunger when I wake up, when I go to bed, I'm like, oh, whatever. Like I'll deal with that. But like being at the point where I'm like, oh, I'm hungry and I'm underfed. And then it's like, all right, I got to go train. Fuck, I've, I've still got that food sitting in my guts. Now I'm going to start spewing it up. That's the fucking worst. That's the pits. And so like if you're able to get be successful as a practitioner working with these clients to get them to that point, then yeah, we can play around with a bit of a cute you know, low EA, but I, I guess there's a spectrum to low EA as well. So like when you say it, what are you, what are you saying in terms of like really low EA? Like, cause some people might hear that and think, Oh, Geordie's fucking cooking them. He's putting them at like seven EA or some shit like that, but you don't necessarily mean seven. It could be like, it's something, <laughs> if you've got to make weight, like you've got to make weight. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like I've had some guys where, again, this is one of the most extreme situations that like, I feel anyone in sports nutrition could find themselves in. Right. Like it's, it's one of those areas. And I think that's what scares off a lot of practitioners. I think a lot of people like the idea of working in combat sports nutrition in theory. Mm. And then when it comes to it, I think 99% of those people can't really handle that pressure because of things like this, because you do sometimes you put someone in LEO five, you can put them up like 15 seems to be around about for most people where they sit, mm. make weight given. Again, there's a caveat to that. Like you just said, we always say, Yes, you can cut weight and you can do all this, but you have to set up the cut Mm. and prep your body for the cut. And that's exactly what you mentioned before. I'm okay doing that if there's, you know, money in the bank to spend. If Mm. we've got money in the bank over there and I know your nutrition literacy is really good, you've nailed these fundamentals and outside of camp, you're putting in all of these good practices. You're not being an idiot, overtraining, undereating and putting yourself in this negative energy debt to the bank that is your body and then going into a fight camp where we're just going to go, you know, even more negative on our credit card. Like you can't be doing that. Like you need to be going in, in a good state. And we call it prepping the body for a fight camp. And that comes with educating your clients and being like, man, like you can't do it. Exactly. Like you said, you can't be just driving these crazy training sessions and then just not eating all throughout. And if you don't like eating around training, fine, we'll work with that, but you can't not eat. You need this energy and you can't be chronically underfed because over, yeah, maybe for a couple months or whatever, you might be okay, mm. but it'll catch up with you. Eventually it'll catch up with you and it'll be so detrimental. And you, like you said before, you, we see this in combat sports. And I always say the biggest problem in combat sports nutrition isn't necessarily weight cutting. Like I'm very confident and very comfortable with the science that I can get 10% water weight off someone in five days and do it pretty safely, rehydrate them, get them back in pretty, pretty safely. I'm pretty confident in that. What I think the bigger issue is, is this LEA outside of fight camps. Yeah. taking this LEA approach, which is probably okay. I think the research is coming out now to say in that 
six to eight week block is probably okay. Yeah. You can be pretty aggressive. You can be pretty aggressive, but outside of that, you cannot continue those habits. And I mm. think like you have this conversation, okay, these guys are rebounding and you know, this weight cycling problem seems to be a bit of an issue we're starting to see in the research. But in my mind, I go, well, it all comes back to how you educate your clients and what conversations are you having with them? Are you giving them all of these fundamentals? So when I see bulk making Cheeto chicken wings on, on his off camp, I'm kind of happy. I'm like, you know what? Have good. more. But yeah, he's yeah. eating high calories. He's probably just like, to me, that's a source of protein. He knows every three hours he's got to get that protein in. So he's having that. And like, he probably knows he's got to bump up the calories somehow. So that's why he's making it where everyone else looks at it and goes, he can't be eating that. It's like, <laughs> yes, yes, again. Like that's the whole point is that he needs to prep his body. So when we come in and we do these fight camps, his body is good and very capable of being able to go in those more aggressive states of LEA. And I know people will listen to this and just go, oh, just give yourself more time. And I go, yeah, I appreciate that. Like, and I would, love it. I would love it. Yeah. I would love it if we could, if we could do it for 14 weeks, like it'd be great, but it's just not the reality of it. Like mm. when the boss man calls and he says, you've got to be on weight at this point, we've got to be on weight at that point. So my safeguard to that is, okay, I'm comfortable with doing that given we've got all these other things working. And that's why I always say, like, if you just want a fight camp plan, if you just want to do six weeks and then F off, I'm not your guy. Like mm. We're not going to do this. We need to do this year round, or I at least need to get you in a position where you understand all these principles. So when you do do this and you do get that short-term call, your body is in a position where it can handle it, you know how to rebound properly, and your body will be able to do it again and again. Yeah. Okay. So um, on that, what's the average amount of fights that you'll see? Like, you know, I guess, I guess say top professionals, world champions might fight two to four times a year. Then as we get down, their fights increase typically annually. And then at the amateurs and sort of lower levels, again, they're probably fighting even more. Yeah. Yeah. Frequently. Like amateurs, they could be fighting every other weekend. You yeah. Know? Like it's like any other sport mm. and they're making weight. So again, and I think that's what I'm, we've put a lot of focus on in the last couple of years is, educating the amateur guys and that's a big thing with tfd is what i really wanted to do and working with the top level guys it's cool for a lot of reasons like like i'll be going back to vegas in a few weeks and it's cool to travel and do all that and be in the media and blah 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 yeah it's all cool the coolest thing about it is that in reality i can get on my instagram on the mic do these podcasts and scream to the mountains like all these ideas and be like guys eat more, be in better states of energy available. Yeah. Don't cut as much weight. And then everyone says, shut up. I don't care. Like, <laughs> like who am I to tell them that? No one's going to listen. But when I have UFC world champions in numerous weight divisions, and then I've got top level boxers in numerous weight divisions and the best jujitsu guys and judo guys all across Australia and New Zealand, when they're all screaming it out and they're posting about it on their social media and they're sending that message out, that's a trickle down effect. Mm. That's a trickle down effect where the young guys that are looking up to them go, oh, Hey, you know what? Israel and Volk, they're not cutting all that much weight. So why would I do it? Yeah. Whereas like back in the day, I think it was so glorified. And like you think of like Connor at 145 and him going up and everyone loved it. And it's, that's not a good look. That's not what you want. That's not what you want to be putting out to the world. And, you know, sending that message to these younger guys saying, yeah, okay, that's acceptable because it's not, it's not acceptable. So that's what I think. And why I'm so grateful for those guys is that they've really embraced this philosophy of, uh, you know what, it is a process and yes, we can get through and we can do these like pretty aggressive little stints, but nutrition is something I need to be doing all year round. Like I don't need to be doing it where I'm counting every macro and getting so hyper obsessed with it. 
but there are principles and there are systems that I need in place to make sure that I can say, if I've got three championship fights in a year, that my body is good and I can show up on a short-term call and make weight for those fights. Mm. And you like, like on that, you'd sort of touched on it before and I sort of want to circle back to it. Um, you were saying like, you don't want them counting macros. And you very much run a meal planning camp approach and you'll even work with catering companies, chefs, all that stuff to ensure that they're just handling that for the client in, in, in that capacity. Why, like, why do you approach it that way? At the end of the day, this is what I always think. Like I'll say, okay, frame it first. Probably 10% of my clients are into it. They're into counting macros and they just enjoy it. Like their nutrition literacy is probably a bit higher and then they enjoy the conversation and you can go a little bit more in depth about why you're doing certain things. Those guys, it's fine. Like get them to count for most of my other guys. And again, I'm framing this from pretty high level guys that have a lot going on. They often turn to me. If I give them macros, they go, why am I paying you? <laughs> why, why do I have to do, why am I tracking all this? Yeah. Like that's your job. What am I paying you for? They, a lot of the time I come on in my role is to take the stress away from having to make weight. What do I eat this week? Okay. I just trained. What do I need to do? What do I need to do this week? And how do I change it up? My weight didn't, drop this week. That's what they're paying me to do. So that's why I give them the meal plan. A lot of the times, probably 85% of our clients, we like strap on with a meal prep company. So I can just send them the numbers and go, Hey, make all these meals. Hey man, all you have to do, it's so simple. Just put it in the microwave, press play, have these other like- <laughs> And eat shakes. what's in the container. Yeah, have these other shakes and then do like this one other thing. And then you're good for the day. You don't have to think about it. That's the big reason. And then the other one underlying to that is again, I don't think it's necessary. And I don't necessarily think it's that healthy unless you've got a certain level of nutrition literacy, you're quite into it. You've got a healthy relationship with food. I'm not a fan of this strict counting macros. Mm. I just think it's just an absolute recipe for disordered eating and eating disordered, especially when you're in these high stress environments. And if someone's, if you don't have that high of nutrition literacy and something's not going right and you don't understand why, or you don't understand how to fix it and you're trying to track all these things, you can just get in this deep, dark loop in your head and go, oh, oh my God, it's, it was the kale sandwich I had the other day. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, whatever it was, it was some weird thing that's throwing me off and it can just start this spiral. And I've seen that so more so with like the gen pop people is that just starts this crazy spiral in their head that kind of goes toward that disordered eating and eating disordered pattern. And I just, I'm not for it. I just think if there's a way that you can avoid it, and you can, you know, achieve all the goals that you need to with these athletes and keep them healthy, keep them performing well, get them on weight without doing that and F off macros. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that like, and this is from a practitioner side of things, but also if you're say an aspiring athlete and you're trying to work out how to, how to really, I guess, like value and appraise nutrition and its relevance like in, in like i guess with your performance and how you're going to progress as an athlete it's like whether or not you know the exact macro breakdown in that food you're still eating it and absorbing those nutrients mm. so the macros are still being consumed they're still being utilized and metabolized so whether or not you comprehend it doesn't dictate whether or not your body's taking it in and so you know like you see it like like with the higher end athletes or, or the athletes that are just on the plan with the caterers it's like your job is really just simplifying it so adherence is there and yes. consistency is there so you know what's going on hey did you did you follow the plan did you eat all the meals nah i missed this meal and this meal cool and then you know how to disseminate that and critically appraise that to then know what to do next week and the week after and all that kind of stuff to then get them to the goal but i think 
people sort of like getting into it. They're like, oh no, they, the client must eat the macro to the gram in order to be effective. They need to know what the macro is in order to be effective to be able to do that. And then we just get caught on this train of thought where it's like, look, if the client's eating the food or not, the macros are still there. Yeah. And they're probably not that into it as you are. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, like, God, you're no. paying money to go study sports. You just, you've dedicated a big chunk of your life to it. They're dedicating their life to, I don't know, even Gen Pop being an engineer, a lawyer or whatever. Like mm. they probably mm. don't really care that much. Like I think as a tool for education, yeah, counting macros is important. Like understanding what a hundred calories of this food looks like and a hundred calories of that food. Is it the be all and end all? No, like it's a cool tool to help people understand and bring their nutrition literacy up. You got to appreciate like not, not everyone's into it. And I think if they're coming to you, that's when that conversation is really important. Understand what does the individual want? Mm. Like I've got clients that I literally will just chat to and we just do education with them. They don't necessarily want a meal plan. They want to bring to me what they're eating and then just talk through it. And for exactly that reason, they want to learn a bit more and understand it. And that's fine. But I don't necessarily think that's completely necessary if you want to do like high performance sport. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. I think also like people just, they don't understand. It's like, like I, I think the majority of people, both ourselves included, right? We'd like to have more money in the bank. Yeah. Well, how much are we tracking our bank? <laughs> no. And like, chances are we're going to want to have more money in the bank than we're going to want to lose like two kilos or something like that. And like, so if we're not, if we can't be asked doing like the bookkeeping associated with that and tra- tracking every dollar and every cent, you know, to everything that we're spending, why are people going to be approaching that with food? And I think that's where the disconnect is. It's like that there's this appraisal for like nutritional literacy and understanding macros as a cram that just isn't really that useful. And like for what you do, you like, and, and especially like the end stages of fire camp, you really just want them making sure that they're adherent and consistent. Mm. And so the simpler it can be, the better. And we see that with like athletes just a lot of the time. And it's funny, like, um, I, I know you said, oh, you know, like people, people probably give you shit or they'll think otherwise and stuff. But it's like, I remember Coiny was presenting at this um, conference we did. Uh, it was probably like two and a half years ago. And he was like, yeah, yeah, this Olympic, um, this gold medal um, Olympic weightlifter in the Chinese team and his like weight making process was just a pack of cigarettes for like 10 days. <laughs> he just didn't eat any food. All he did was smoke a pack of cigarettes and drink water. And that was it. And he was like, this is elite world champion gold medal sports nutrition, right? And it's like, I, if people are listening to this, you know, they might think that you're saying some extreme things. It's like, no guys, the extremes are like yeah. way over here and way worse. And so hopefully they hear this and sort of understand that like, I, and, and can start reappraising where things sit in terms of like what the big chunks in the lowest hanging fruit are with athletes. Yeah, man. Like <laughs> I'm kind of like not telling the worst stories. Like, I've got <laughs> athletes that do some pretty out there stuff that if I bring it up, like if I was presenting something exactly that, Hey, yeah, this guy is like one of the best in the world, what he does. And he eats Uber eats, whatever he wants up until this. I'm sure if you break it down and like I have, you break down and it just comes, they're just burning so much. So you need to close that gap. But there's probably other things that they do say they have, like they drink, like a lot of athletes won't drink for two months before they compete or whatever. I have athletes that they'll drink every weekend, not super excessively, but they will. And then you break it down. You go, well, is it the best for their performance or health or recovery or whatever? No. But again, coming back to that performance pie, what's important, maybe them going out with their friends or with their partner and with, you know, doing whatever social event mentally, that's just a huge relief for them. And they need that every week to unwind and reset and get back into the next week of training. So understanding that and not just going, no, that alcohol, you can't do that. You know, that's seven calories per gram and that's going to affect your recovery. No one should be doing it. But yeah, like 
the standard is, yeah, maybe say that, but how do you argue when this guy's the best in the world at what he does? There's literally not a single other human that does what he does as well as him. And he's doing that. Mm, mm. So how do you argue with it? <laughs> exactly. It was like, um, there was, I don't know if you saw this paper, there's this like singular paper and it compared alcohol consumption, the acute effects of alcohol consumption to like chemotherapy or some shit on the body to say like how bad it was. And that was doing the rounds in like the physique sports and body composition sort of like realm and people saying, this is why you shouldn't do it. And it just got so dogmatic to the point where like, yeah, people were like legitimately like just avoiding alcohol for years and then thinking that it was like killing their games. And then like you're saying, like here are like world champion bodybuilders and physique athletes and strength athletes who are beating the people that aren't, who are abstaining from alcohol, who, are, you know, having five, six drinks a week easily maybe even 10 some weeks. And it just, it just wasn't having the effect, you know, I guess the, the claims were having and it was just being so sensationalized, but yeah, it's fucking crazy, man. Um, the other thing that I wanted to suss out was, um, or sort of touch on is the, uh, I know we spoke about it before, but like where, I guess like where you see the current research in and, and like applications in combat sports and, and, and weight making. I think it, 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 I guess it's more specific to weight making, right? Because, mm -hmm. You're in weight making combat sports, but we have like weight making across a lot of modalities. We've got combat sports, we got lifting, we've got, you know, jockeys use this, all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of things that are sort of like ancestral, like hand-me-down practices that some, you know, I guess we'd refer to as like bro science in the industry, but it's like this hand-me-down stuff. Some of the practices, hey, there might be some evidence to inform it. Some of them are like highly dangerous. <laughs> Where do you see? sort of that at the landscape of that at the moment. Yeah. I think right now in terms of like weight descent and losing weight, say in that chronic weight loss, I think we've got it pretty down pat. Like we know enough and we can, especially in combat sports, like classic 2011, Carl Langan Evans, James Morton, those guys making weight in combat sports. You can use those principles, three, two, one principles, set it up, aim for 0 0.5 to one kilo per week and blah, blah, blah. You can do all that. And I think yeah, exactly what we spoke about for the last 40 minutes with EA. Mm. Like assess all of that, blah, blah, blah. The interesting does come when it comes to the acute and rapid weight loss, which is like the fight week and weight cut period because we don't have a lot of evidence. And the evidence that we do have isn't that great, right? Like because you think of weight cutting, let's use combat sports for the example, is how do you study that and get approval from ethics? And I think this is where having that baseline understanding of, mechanistic physiology or understanding biochemistry and really understanding how that applies to your athlete is so, so important. Like it, it never ceases to surprise me when I talk to people in this field and they go, Hey, I want to cut this much weight with this guy. And I want to do this. And you go, okay, like well, why and they go, Oh, like, it's just his coach told him to do it. Or he said, he's done it all the time. You go like, yeah, but why are you doing that? Why are you doing it? Like water loading? Why are you water loading with this guy? Well, like he's just always done it yeah, but does it work? Well, yeah, he thinks it works, but yeah, but does it work? Mm, mm. And it's like, and to rationalize that, and I think water loading is a really good example because we have one study on it. We have read study yeah. about it. And I always think, okay, well, and why this is important. And I think if people aren't that interested in the topic, this would be kind of boring, but I think it's an important note to bring up is like, okay, why are you water loading? You're using that as an acute weight loss strategy to move safely, move more water weight so you don't have to cut as much weight in a sauna which is what we deem as a more high risk strategy right so when we go okay alex you come to me and you go hey i want a water load and then someone goes oh yeah just drink eight liters 
well, this guy, why eight liters? Oh, because Tony drinks eight liters and Bobby drinks eight liters and it seems to work for them. It's like, well, why, why eight liters? We, can I get the same effect with that? Can I get that slightly more drop in weight from doing six liters mm. or like, and, and Reed's paper outlines this really well is where he sets up this protocol and he shows, you know, water loading does work a little bit better. He's doing the hundred mil per kilogram. And he goes, okay, hundred mil per kilogram followed by one day of 15 mil seems to be more effective than if one person is just drinking, say 40 mil per kilogram for three days and then cuts down. So the higher load seems to do something a little bit more. That's all we know about it. Yeah. And then even the mechanistic, okay, why did that happen? They go, well, in theory, like your bros and everyone else will tell you, oh, you're tricking the body to get more fluid out. You're tricking. And if people aren't that into renal hormones, this might go a bit, sound a bit weird, but like you're trying to suppress this thing called vasopressin, like antidiuretic hormone to tell your body to stop retaining water and allow it to just flush through. And Reed, he measured this. He, he measured renin, he measured aldosterone, he measured vasopressin. And what he found is that, yeah, for that period when you're loading with the higher water, yeah, that vasopressin is a bit lower, but instead of suppressing even further and allowing this flush, it actually shoots back up. Like mm. It shoots back up in that period where you cut the water, but that group still got Greater weight loss. Greater weight loss. And then you think, okay, well, why is that important? You go, okay, well, think about it mechanistically. And you go, okay, while you're doing that, what does vasopressin do? It works on the, you know, on the uh, luminal side of the collecting duct to increase aquaporin two channels, which encourages more reabsorption of fluid into the kidney. So we retain more fluid. They're suppressing that. So obviously more fluid is passing through, but then we get this spike. So what happened? Maybe what happened is that we express these aquaporin channels those three days and then that spike came up but maybe there was enough of a lag time that before these aquaporin channels like caught on that that spike was up and readjusted that we flushed more water and people listen to this goes what does this matter and you go well it matters in practice because if you understand the mechanism you can change it for the individual maybe alex thomas hates drinking 100 mil per kilogram but I need to get a bit more weight off can I get that same effect if I do it with 75 mils mm. per kilogram can I do that with 50 mils, what can I do to make this least stressful or less stressful for the athlete? Or do I get a better response if I do 150 mils? If I do 200 mils, where is the point where, okay, where we cut the water off? Is there a time frame there? Does it work more effect like effectively if I do a six-hour reduction, if I do a 12-hour reduction, a 24-hour reduction? And you can do this and rationalize all these mechanisms out for every single acute weight loss strategy that we use, sodium manipulation, glycogen depletion, fiber loading and plus the water load. you can do that with all of these things and when you break it down we don't have a lot of research to back it so understanding mechanistically the mechanistic physiology behind it allows me to go okay alex when you come to me this is what i'm pretty confident we're trying to do in your body this is like yeah we've got some theory behind it it kind of says this but i need to figure out how those numbers work for you and what am i looking out for to see if i'm achieving that so maybe I just cut you back to 75 mil per kilogram and you still get the same drop as what we did last camp at hundred mil. And I go, Alex, well, good. I don't need you to water load as aggressively and walk around and piss your pants and shopping centers and embarrass yourself <laughs> because you don't need to be that aggressive. And we still got it. But understanding that mechanism is super, super important. And again, I keep saying this, this is why it's so important when all those classes you did at first year uni or you're learning your, all these things are going, oh, why is this relevant? It is relevant. It is relevant when you need to break down things that we don't have a lot of evidence for and you've got to rely on your knowledge of physiology or biochemistry or whatever. And that's kind of weight cutting summary. Like that's, that's where we're at with it. It's a really exciting, 
yet scary area to work in because we don't have a lot of this evidence and we're kind of not shooting in the dark, but you're taking a lot of your knowledge and making a lot of inferences, trying to keep that athlete as safe and as healthy as possible when there's not really that best practice evidence to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like you, Matt, you covered so many and um, you know, points, I guess, like limitations that we have in the current literature and then other ones are as well as like, and we spoke about this heaps um, with this, this like never ending paper that'll <laughs> eventually one day get It'll done. Come out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it's the concept as well as like all the literature at the moment is so heavily geared to absolutes. So it's like, it, it, it's a dose per kilo of body weight. So it's grams per kilo or mils per kilo. And a lot of the literature hasn't looked at like relative changes. So we look at Reed's study, for instance, and it's like, well, what were they doing before? And then what was that? And then so, so then how different was that intervention, you know, compared to what they were doing before versus after? Is it, you know, are there relative adjustments that we can then be making as well? And that's and that's sort of it. Like I would say, I, like I agree with everything that you're saying. And I wasn't aware, like we started this whole thing. We were talking shop, you know, years ago. And it's just like, wow, we've got to do more, more stuff in this space, right? And I was like, we need to do a lot more. We don't know that much. And then in talking to you, I was like, holy shit, we don't know that much at all. It's like, I, I would liken it to, it's like, what's your visibility like at the moment when the sun's up and it's daytime compared to when it's like moonlight and star not, starlight, right? Like, night. <laughs> like, 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 like the research, it's there. It gives us some light, but like it's dark as shit and we can't see as much compared to like daylight compared to like other areas that like we're a lot more confident in other sciences that we're a lot more confident in right like whether it's like physics around gravity yeah like we're pretty good in that area but like when it comes to like acute and like rapid weight making strategies we have like papers we've got some great principles but there's a lot of stuff that we've got to keep looking at and that's like that's in the evidence-informed area now if we go like and i guess broaden our bandwidth and then we see all the crazy shit that's still going on there it's like crazy. So, mate, what are some, what are some of the most like full-on things that you've seen done in recent years? Oh, man, and, there's, and- there's been a few. Like, um, like I've seen guys where they'll they'll eat clean for like four weeks and they'll come to you. Like, that's the worst thing. I cannot. That's the biggest red flag. If someone comes to you and they go, "Man, I've been eating clean, but I'm not losing weight," you go, "Eating clean probably means you've cut all your carbohydrates, cut all your fiber out, you've reduced your salt, and you probably stopped drinking water." And they're all the things we need to try to manipulate. <laughs> during that fight week. And like you said, everything is relative, right? Like what's your habitual intake? And then from that habitual intake, if I'm trying to glycogen deplete you, but you haven't eaten carbs in four weeks, there's probably not a lot of glycogen. So even if I go by the textbook and give you 50 grams of carbs, if you've been eating 60 grams every day leading up or even less, nothing's going to happen, right? And so that's super common. You see guys rock up to fight weeks and like, I'm lucky, none of my team, obviously, but like you see a lot of guys and say, from Russia or not so much China now that reads out there pushing a lot of those athletes, but some of those Asian countries and they'll rock up and they just look depleted as, and that's the last thing you want to see because what happens then is they try to do all these strategies. They get nowhere with it. They're 10, 12% heavier than what they need to be. And then they don't lose anything in the three, four days leading up to weigh-ins. And so how do they lose the weight? Sit in the sauna or in the bath. Mm. But now my guys who rock up 10 to 12%, we've been able to use these strategies, habitual intakes up here. We've you know, cut it back down here and we've got all this good loss and everything's gone. And now they've got three, four, 5% to do, which is like, it's not fun, but it's very doable. It's very safe. And I'm confident we can do it in a couple of hours. 
But then you got this guy over here, like from the mountains. Of, I'm giving Dagestan a low shit because I'm a bit salty because one of our guys <laughs> lost to him. But um, like he comes in and then he's got to lose 10% or 12%. And there's that like, there's a scale, like some people's bodies, like most things in biology are on that, on that bell curve, right? Yeah. There's going to be some guys that can do 10%. Most people can't. Again, elite level sport, are we filtering out the guys that can, we can have that combo, yada, yada, yada. But for most people, that's not healthy. And you see that. That's the most common thing I see. Guys come in and they're like, I just have to cut this water weight. And imagine like, if you're listening to this, work out what 10% of your weight is right now. And imagine losing that in 12 to 24 hours by sweating. Mm. So for me, that's nine, nine and a half kilos. That's ludicrous. Yeah, like, imagine disgusting. losing nine kilos. Again, like, most people probably sweat like what? A kilo and a half, two kilos max in a training session. Yeah. Imagine doing that times, you know, four or five. But like also consider that you're sweating that much out in a training session whilst like rehydrating and replenishing. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just natural, right? It's it's an involuntary unconscious thing. We've got access to water. All right, we're just going to throw some more yeah. down. So like you're not having that. Yeah. And you've got to keep doing that for hours and hours on end and your rate of sweat reduces yeah. as time goes on as well. Yeah, and I think uh, coming back to your original question, like what's the most crazy is like, there's been promotions I've been at and I won't say which ones, but guys have literally had cardiac arrest and there's had to be in the med team, like no one on my team, like, <laughs> but like other teams where we've seen like the, the medical team rush in and it's exactly because of that. They've just cut way too much water weight. Like there's a very specific way if you're going to move a lot of fluid out of your body, what you have to do and things you can expect to happen in the body that you can monitor to make sure it's all safe. But they don't give a shit. No. <laughs> they just got to make weight. So they just do it. And yeah, there's been, their heart stopped and they've been resussed back to life. And like, this is how serious it is. Like people have died trying to do this. How crazy this thing is. And I think- Before they even get in there, they're like- Before they even get in there, it's like they call it the fight before the fight for a reason, which I think is absolutely ridiculous for one, but like it is. And people just go in, they just quite literally knock on death's door trying to make weight because they don't understand. Even though we don't have a lot of science, they don't even understand the science we have. And they're quite literally just putting their body through hell, like extreme- dehydration like probably the equivalent of you and me going out to the desert for four or five days with like maybe a 500 mil bottle of water and between us two you know trying as well that's oh, what man. they're doing before they get on the biggest stage with another elite level athlete who's going to be punching them kicking them choking them out and everything it, it's madness it's fucking crazy and so like from my end the most annoying thing that i dealt with and like i barely like work fighters years ago, but I'd help them like in their, like, I guess like not in their weight making, it would just be like, right, these are the strategies that we want to work on. And if you're doing this stuff the whole time through, it's going to make it a lot easier. Uh, man, this gym had everyone fucking just one meal intermittent fasting, Jeez. one meal a day, like one feeding window a day. And I was just like, guys, you can't do that. So like that was fucking crazy. So like it would be intermittent fasting into then, really aggressive like, like water-based weight cuts into fights to try and make weight and i was like yeah i can't have any part of this um so that was my like bad story but i'm sure you've seen a lot worse one thing that i wanted to ask i know we spoke about it, and this is like ea circling back to the ea shit and this is probably the last thing we'll talk about um before we wrap up is and there's no way we're going to be able to know but we know that with low ea right it's going to affect your bone mineral density and so i guess that really then highlights the importance again of like you know, prepping, like what, what, what's the term that you have within your team? Like prep your body for prep the your cut. body for the cut. Right. So it's the importance of like your off season or your way from camp fueling, right. And having it good. We know that it leaches bone mineral density and we're seeing pretty frequently these leg breaks. And so like something we've spoken about is like, I wonder like when there's no way we're going to be able to tell, but like, I wonder 
of these people like who are like having these leg breaks, like what the nutrition practices are and what the EA status is and what the bone mineral density is like for them. Because it's something where like we're seeing it like more than really any other sports. Like, like it's like checking a leg kick. We know that that's going to probably happen, but there's times where it hasn't even been that. And then there's, and it's like, you know, because there's other high contact sports, there's like America, like NFL and stuff, people are doing their ACLs, their legs are going in horrible directions, but it's the ankle and it's the knee or it's the hip or something that's getting put in like a horrible position and then not having the same sort of like compound fracture impacts. And so like, well, like, I mean, like, mate, fuck, like that's pretty crazy, right? Like, do you think that there's a bit of a link or there could be? I think if it's a coincidence, it's a, it's a pretty big coincidence i think you're pretty bang on with it it's it, like you said it's hard to say right you don't know i like being bullish so i'm yeah. happy to go out there and be like oh, i think it's this yeah. and be like but i'm ignorant so, at the same time i would say like especially say if we're talking about the ufc i think the ufc performance institute is like four years old and this is the thing i think a lot of these athletes they say the three that have broken their legs maybe yeah it could just be they just checked the kick the wrong way maybe they had stress fractures like from something that wasn't related to lea Knowing what I know from the inside with these things and particularly with one of those athletes and what they used to do with their diet, I would probably, if I had- This is one of the more recent ones. This is one that we started talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their diet was dog shit. If I I had a hundred dollars to bet on it, I would probably say it's probably diet related because this guy was just had for years when he was on his coming up, had a terrible diet. Yeah. Terrible, terrible diet. But at the time, this is like we keep saying, like those effects of LEA- you're probably not going to see them. Mm. And mm. maybe it's just that in a couple of years time, this is when we're starting to see it. And I think knowing what I know within the industry now, not just say with bone mineral density, when we're talking about things like shot metabolism and hypermetabolism, where you've got adaptive thermogenesis happening, that's something that happens over quite a long period of time. Yeah, And you see that. And I know people and I know athletes who've had to take 12, 18 plus months off because they just, their metabolism, they've blown an RMR and they're blowing 11, 1200 when they predicted is 18, 19, 2000. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's just ridiculous. And I think you're seeing the results of all those old school mentality, eat one meal a day, like cut out all carbohydrates during your fight camp, you know, do all this crazy stuff, train up here, eat down here. I think you're probably starting to see some of it. I mean, mm. if it was a coincidence, I would be pretty surprised. And it's just been such a higher volume for contact sports, but like checks are like that. And like a lot of them are checks. The majority are, but there have been some that aren't. Mm. Yeah. That's where like, to me, I'm like, Ooh, like, you know, like you look at the NFL gridiron players and they're like diving into their legs and it's not happening. But like these guys aren't starving themselves to make weight at the same time. So look, that's big correlation equals causation claims, but like huge, huge. I'm happy to, I'm happy to make them for my armchair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The statistician is just throwing folks at us going, no, but you're yeah. allowed to hate me. That, Jordy plays it safe. Yeah. Like that man, LEA, like I said, cutting weight in combat sports, I don't think is the biggest issue. I yeah. think there's LEA in the long-term chronic LEA. It's a far bigger issue in this mm. sport. And I think having conversations like this and putting it out there is really, really important. Like you can't be doing these crazy weight cuts unless your body is in a position to be able to do it. You need to be eating in these high EA. You need to be good. Your body needs to be healthy. Your metabolism needs to be good. Your bones need to be strong if your job is to make weight four or five times a year. Mm. There's mm. just no question about it. And I think, well, what are the consequences of that? Like, <laughs> that's it. Like, yeah. Injuries. Messed up shit. Yeah, yeah, injuries big time. Like lower back shit we see like real frequently as well. 
on that, I remember um, two things before we completely finish. One, I wanted to get your thoughts on remember when Cejudo was like coming up and he just won and they were like looking at all his stuff. What did you think of the whole like nervous system <laughs> assessments they were doing? Was this um, and he was doing like the force is like neuro force or something I don't know. Like I, I, I forget exactly what it was. They were basically like, oh, we're testing his nervous system every morning. I think there's, there is, man, like uh, if you asked me 18 months ago, I would have said that's BS. Yeah. I think what I'm understanding now and, and understanding a lot more about say breath work. And again, it plays into that mindfulness and the mental game. I don't think we're at a point where you could probably measure like your, we could probably measure readiness to a degree. And I know a lot of strength conditioning coaches do that. If you've say got force plates and things like that, and you can physically measure. They love force plates yeah. and um, HRV. Yeah. 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 And if you, if you can like measure that stuff, but like a lot of our guys will take HRV and they'll do all that, but it's like, take it with a grain of salt. Like if mm. that thing says no, that your nervous system is down, <laughs> come on. Like you could probably, let's see, let's see if you can get that train. Don't immediately take it off. I had a client a few years ago. If he's if he was sparring and his um, heart rate got above a certain amount, he'd just stop mid round, just mid round stopping the coach. Be like, what the fuck? What are you doing? No, 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 no. Like, I can't, wrong I can't, zone. Can't wrong zone. Zone. I can't red zone. He's like, you think in the middle of a fight in front of twenty thousand fans, you can just stop and go? No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't. Peaking. I've got to peak too, in the last minute. Too much lactate. Yeah, yeah, up. yeah, yeah. Give me a break. Give me a break. Let me breathe and get it out. So, yeah, man. Like, I think there is probably some merit, and as research comes out. I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think we have technology that can pick it up. There is merit. I think your nervous system controls everything, right? And understanding how to balance your parasympathetic and sympathetic is important. I don't think we're quite there though. Yeah. To me, I sort of like, when I, when I looked at it, I sort of looked at it objectively and I took, took a definitely more bird's eye view approach with it. And I was like, cool. They were gauging this to tell this guy to rest and eat more. Mm -hmm. And he's a guy that was like an elite collegiate wrestler following like hectic restrictive diets and had been weight regulating himself for the better part of the last 15, 20 years of of his athletic career. And now they're telling him to eat more and train less. That's like, like getting better EA is probably like what's helping him in the long run. So I wasn't like necessarily attributing it to like, Oh, you're testing his nervous system. I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, more, more likely going to be like improving his overall EA, which is then helping recovery. And yeah, like, maybe picking it up through this like system that tests your nervous system is a way of sort of like ascertaining or, or maybe there's an intrinsic link between lower EA and whether or not your nervous system is a bit fried or something like that. But like, yeah, I definitely didn't think it was that, that amazing by any stretch. So one last thing, um, recommendations, right? So if you had recommendations for uh, fighters, we know, all right, we go, all right, optimize EA prep to, to prep to be in a camp, right? But what does that look like for, and we say optimize EA and typically we'd, you'd settle on what, like 80-20 rule, right? But someone's top level pro, they're going to fight three, four times a year. But then say they're aspiring, they're going to fight a little bit more. What about these amateur guys, right? So like, what's your recommendation for these amateur guys? Because they can't do an eight-week fight camp for fighting every second weekend. Yeah, I always tell the amateurs like, worry about cutting weight when you're getting paid a lot of money. Right. And if you have to say, if there's an opening in the weight division below you, and that's the only way you can make the UFC or Bellator one, you've got to go in there, worry about it. Then I think when you're coming up skill acquisition and then mastering those skills in any sport, it's going to be far superior than say what you're doing with your diet and training kids. That's not saying that they're not important and they, they all do contribute to your overall performance. 
But at the end of the day, if you can't throw a punch and you go into a boxing ring, it doesn't matter how shredded you are, how good your deadlift is. It doesn't matter any of that, how good your HRV is. If you can't throw a punch, I guarantee you're getting planted in, in that fight. You know what I mean? So I would just, again, go back to the basics. Like if you're thinking about nutrition, nail those basics, the most basic things. Make sure you're fueling up with carbohydrates. Don't fall into the carb phobia that's around in so much of sports nutrition. Eat good, healthy fats. Get your protein every few hours throughout the day. Make sure you're drinking lots of water. It's skill acquisition. That's what I say to mm. all of our amateurs. It's not worth it. Why put so much effort and thought and energy into making weight when the guy you're fighting is probably doing that with his skills and his game plan to beat you? It doesn't matter if you come in a little bit bigger. If you can't defend a double leg and that guy's just constantly peppering you with double legs, it doesn't matter that you were four or five kilos heavier than him. It doesn't matter. He's mm. going to win. He's just and you've depleted yourself, and now you don't have the energy to fucking yeah, exactly. deal so with now, it as well. He's on the double leg. You can't even like you can't reverse him. You can't get up. You can't shrimp out. You can't do anything with it. Mm. So it's like just focus. I always say to amateurs like maximum sit three to five percent outside of your competition weight, heaviest, absolute heaviest, and just focus on getting better as an athlete. There's yeah. no point. There's no point. Yeah, and then aspiring sort of pros like lower level pros who might fight a little bit more frequently? I say nowadays, I say, okay, I'm pretty comfortable with doing the 10%, 8% for females. I usually say just sit a little bit outside that. And so for the guys that aren't, you know, top level guys where that size advantage might be a bigger thing. Okay. If we know we can move 10% that fight week, sit 12, 13% outside. And then when you go into a fight camp, cause you're probably fighting less regularly, you only have to lose two, 3%. It's a pretty mild deficit that you have to go in. You can still yeah. fuel yourself. You're not cooked by the time you get there. Let's make sure we practice these weight cutting strategies. So when we get to this fight, you're pretty familiar with it. It's not like a draining system. And, and we know how you respond to these numbers. I say 10%, maybe you have to do 5%, but let's figure all that outside of camp. We'll do a trial run. And then, so we're not depleting your body. And I guess for the next question is obviously like the pros, those guys, okay it's different, right? And you game plan, like we have different fights where say, okay, we want to come in a bit heavier for this because this guy's a real grapple heavy guy. So we plan for that where, okay, actually, you know what? Let's just come into the camp a bit lighter and then not lose so much and just rely on that 10% because this is going to be a real technical stand-up fight. And we know that like the weight difference isn't going to be that much when it comes to like striking. So that's where it gets a bit more technical. Most of the top level guys are going to be sitting anywhere from 15, 16, 17% out from their weight. And we're probably going to be losing about 1% per week each In week camp. going into camp and then relying on that 10% to get out. Again, that's that's pretty extreme. If you run those numbers in your head for yourself real quickly, you go, well, it's pretty big. But again, EA outside. Make yeah. sure you're prepped. Make sure you're prepped. You can do that if you're prepped to do it. Well, I mean, that's 18 weeks of a 52-week year, right? Mm. So like for the for, for, the majority of the rest of the time, as long as you got optimal AI, you're good. Yeah, exactly. So no, that's awesome, mate. That was really good. Um, one thing we'll chat briefly about, um, I guess, get you to say like two things, two things on, get you to say a couple of things on is the, um, this weight cutting committee that we're going to look at doing um, conversations that we've had or that we not that we're looking at doing that we are doing um, and conversations that we've had at nauseam as well as is, is like, no one really covers this. So like, Hey, you're a dietitian, but weight cutting for athletes isn't exactly in like your standard 
dietitian insurance policy and registrations and all that kind of stuff. And so that was like, you know, in embarking in the research side of things to try and get more, that was another thing that we found. And so I was like, well, shit, we better get something like this because people like yourself are making careers out of it. But we also know that there's like people who aren't as evidence informed and, you know, for lack of a better word, they're snag or salesmen. And so they're making a career off it as well, but they're endangering and putting people's health in their hands and then fucking it up as well. And so as a result of this stuff and as a result of like the hand-me-down culture that we see, we know that there's gross overreaction as soon as something pretty fucked up happens and pretty bad happens. So as soon as you know something bad happens with someone's health, we're going to get gross overreaction to, to the government from the government side of things to these practices is where we're going to get things like weight cutting in general or fights is just completely outlawed. And it's, and it's not to say that, Hey, they're not dangerous. They, they do come with risk, but they can be mitigated if we follow some, you know, pretty evidence informed principles. And so what we're looking to do and undertake is, and what we've done is form a committee of professionals in respective fields that are associated and linked with rapid and acute um, weight descent. So that way we can nominate an effective scope of practice that will cover people and say, Hey, in this spectrum of weight cutting, this is actually really good. And so we know that we can do this stuff safely, but all this other shit, we got to get rid of that. And those activities won't be covered. And then we'll just look to start like reviewing it. So you want to give us like your two cents on that whole thing? Yeah. Well, it's important, right? Like I think as the sport grows, as more people are doing it, it's good. Like it's good. I think MMA is exploding. Like I think it's the new karate jujitsu, I think is the new karate. Remember at school and stuff where karate kid. You, you, your parents would make you do karate after school. And you'd be like, oh, mom. Like, <laughs> it's like jujitsu now. There's jujitsu schools everywhere. And that's naturally going to form into these kids wanting to do MMA as they get older. And then as part of that, it's a weight category sport. doesn't matter what judo, jujitsu, MMA, boxing, kickboxing, making weight is going to be a part of it. It's not going to leave. Like it's just part of the sport. What we can influence is, the culture and the thought process behind it by having what we would call, I wouldn't say anyone in the world is necessarily an expert on this area, but by having people that are very, very well informed, both academically and practically all putting their heads together to come up with say best practice guidelines, which is something we just don't have. Like we just don't have, you can read any paper, everything that I spoke about, you you may or may not even be able to find that on the internet. Mm. And then even if you do find a paper, if you read it, are you confident that say a new graduate is going to read that paper and then be able to safely take someone through that process right now with what we have? I'm not. And I think we've seen this. And, and like you said, it's probably for the 99% of people, it's going to be fine. Like even if you just kind of follow it and you take some good performance nutrition guidelines, you'll probably take that person through and they'll be fine. But that's, that's not what risk mitigation is about, right? You're doing it for that 1%. And like we saw this last year, right? We saw mm. this last year where an athlete, female athlete, amateur female athlete was taken to emergency surgery because of the advice of, you know, someone, a weight cut specialist that didn't have the information that we have, that all the people in the committee have. And they ended up putting this girl in emergency surgery. Mm. And that's the 1%, right? There was so many other people who cut weight that year and made weight fine, but that's the 1%. And as that sport grows and as it gets bigger, there's going to be more of these 1%. That number is going to get bigger and bigger. So it is important that we put some some guidelines and some structure around this. Okay. How do we educate the broader community when there's new practitioners coming out and there will be, because it's a new exciting area and they're going to, I want to practice in this area. Where do I get good quality information from? Mm. We, and we, we and don't we, have that now, but we, that's what we're working on. Yeah, exactly. And I think 
like from our end, like it by no means is going to be the be all and end all and the most extensive thing for the first few years. It's just like part of it is, is just like acknowledging, hey, there's a lot of problematic practices here. We're more going to highlight what we don't want to see happening rather and, and then encourage more of what we what we already know that we do know is like best practice at this point in time. And then over time look to refine the best practice. But it's more just to publicly acknowledge all right, these things we know are screwed. This is what's going to mess someone up. This is dangerous. Let's let's stop those activities. Those activities won't have any coverage or insurance for it whatsoever. But if you're doing these and you're working with these athletes, then you will have coverage. So that way, if something does happen and it's a 1% of eat, because the thing is as well is like, the 1% can still happen even if you're doing the evidence-based stuff. Yeah, you're doing it right. Yeah, for sure. Like, it's crazy. It's like, you, you always talk about, um, you know, uh, it's like it's like it's like being in like being in the bath like or the sauna with them or you know being in the trenches with them, and it's like, what happens when shit goes wrong? Are you gonna you know are you gonna step up or are you gonna crumble? Because you need to have done the reps in those scenarios as well because things don't go according to plan in that stuff and then shit hits the fan and that's where obviously you know being cool under fire is important but at the same time having your ability to like critically appraise and understand all the sciences and the mechanistic things that are going on. So that way, you know how to pivot is really important. And so these 1% is even if you're following the, the, these, these guidelines and stuff still may happen. So to know that, all right, I'm following these and I'm covered. So that way you can be a little bit more cool under fire. That, that, that That's like a good thing as well. But like, I guess our role really is just going, right, create a scope, create a, create a policy that then will cover these activities. So that way you can safely earn a living and do this shit as your career and not be like, Oh, like I'm in some clinical field and I'm hoping that like, it's good. Now I know for sure I'm good for these things. And then at the same time, if shit goes wrong while following these things, because we still don't know enough about it, but we know these other things that we've said, get rid of them. They're definitely screwed. Um, you know, that, that way you can just be calm in, in, in these stressful moments. Right. Yeah. And I think it's an important point, right? Like, and what we're saying is, and what this is good for is that someone's taking ownership for it, which right now, Mm. No one wants ownership. And like, you see this at the higher levels. Like, is it the sports meds team responsibility? They're kind of like, Oh, maybe yeah. not. And then, or is it the dietitian team? And they're like, yeah, maybe to this point, but then it's you guys. And then we'll palm it off to someone else. And no one really wants to take control of that. And then having something like this. Yeah, it is, it is high risk, but I think that's what makes it more important because as I said, again, as the sport grows, more people are going to be doing it. So we need to have these structures and policies in place so when, you know, that 1% does happen, or even if it happens, if you do everything right and it still happens, what do you do? And you know how to respond to it. And you know that you've got the backing of, you know, an association or someone to talk to or someone to run things by, you know how to handle that situation. Yeah. No, that's it, bro. We got everything we need. Boom. <laughs>